2: Welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 152. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. So, trifecta special this week. That's three flash stories written by three different authors, read by three different narrators, all based around some sort of theme. The theme of this trifecta, anthropomorphism. But first, the moment some of you have been waiting for, the Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. Okay, so we gathered up all the stories we ran in 2009, both on our main feed and our Drabblecast B-Sides feed, and we asked you listeners which feature story and which 100-word Drabble story you liked the most. You voted, and we have some winners. Drumroll, please. For best 100-word travel story of 2009, between Time Machine by Christopher K. Monroe, Homeostasis by Phenopath, Absent-Minded Professor by Peter Recore, The Absurdly Connected Machine by Jalen Pierce, and Happy Ending by Michael Young, the winner is. The Absent-Minded Professor by Peter Recore, from episode 138. This is the story where a brilliant old man suffering from dementia talks to his daughter on the phone while fighting off hordes of alien invaders from our planet's atmosphere. A wonderful drabble, the creme de la creme of the scores we ran last year. Go check it out. Congrats to Peter for making his mark in the 100-word story genre. We've got a plaque with your name on it, buddy. Okay, now the biggin. The People's Choice Best Story of the Year category. Supposedly, there are more prestigious awards floating around out there in the world of SF fantasy and horror markets, but not in my book. Kendall, myself, and our kickass team of slush readers spend a crapload of time searching for great stories with an aura of Drabblecast to them to produce for you folks. It's like finding a mole fetus in a haystack. Then, the most engaged, most plugged-in portion of our listenership, those who hang out in our discussion forums, nominate their favorite stories, and we determine the top five stories of the year. But, unfortunately, as is the case with Highlanders, girlfriends, and baby clown hatchlings, there can be only one. You listeners had to make the incredibly difficult choice of choosing the best of the best of the best we could find. Looking over the top five now, I'm pretty much in total agreement. These were probably my favorite stories to read and produce over the past year. The top five are Episode 129, Annabelle's Alphabet by Tim Pratt Episode 109, Babble Probe by David D. Levine Episode 139, Let Us Now Praise Awesome Dinosaurs by Leonard Richardson Episode 115, Clown Eggs by Jay Lake and Episode 146, Teddy Bears and Tea Parties by S. Boyd Taylor The competition was close for a while, and then it became fairly evident which story was going to take it. The winner of the 2009 Drabblecast People's Choice Award is… Babble Probe by David D. Levine. Babble Probe was outstanding. It was good hard sci-fi with a cool time-traveling AI and one hell of a fight scene. I'm happy that it's honored thusly. For those of you newer to the Drabblecast, this is the third annual Drabblecast People's Choice Awards. If you'd like to take a listen to past years, you can find them in our fan archive, GardenStreet.org slash which is also linked off our main page at Drabblecast.org. Episode 43, Jelly Park by Aaliyah Whiteley was our 2007 winner, and Robert Reed took the Chalice of Glory last year with episode 83 floating over time. Big congrats to Mr. Levine. You are honored and chosen amongst many. Hope you have a place cleared on your mantle for the sacred chalice of glory. So, anthropomorphism, human characteristics on non-humans, and this week we're focusing on the animal variety. Boy, oh boy, mankind sure does love it some talking animals, doesn't it? And you know what? I love them too. I mean, what's not to love? You got Cowardly Lions and Mickey Mouse and Orwell's Socialist Pigs and Coughing Dogs Possessed by Evil Spirits. They make our literature, movies, religions, sports teams and all sorts of stuff more fun. We use them for cute entertainment value in kids' stories. We use them for devices and serious literature to apply metaphor. We use them in video games like Battletoads, which was the hardest (laughs) damn video game ever. Ghosts and Goblins, Bayou Billy, the first Mega Man. Listen, I'm no pansy when it comes to old school NES games, but level three of Battletoads was just downright sadistic. Oh God, having to ride that hover bike over those floating jumps at Mach 10 with those flying rats or pigs or whatever the hell they were, dropping walls in front of you. (laughs) And you only get three lives, three freaking lives. And you gotta start all over again from level one. I mean, what the hell? God, that game was brutal. Battletoads is like getting gang-raped as a 12-year-old. I hate that game, and I hate anthropomorphism now. God, I gotta do a whole f***ing show on it. Oh, let's just get this over with. Actually, our first story is Kick-Ass. It's by one of the nicest, smartest guys I know, Alistair Stewart, and it's called The Existential Lizard. Alistair is mainly occupied as a freelance journalist, fiction writer, editor, and podcast broadcaster, but he's also a managing director of Jorvik Games Ltd., a gaming and role-playing retailer. His work appears in quite a few places, but most recently he's worked for magazines like Sci-Fi Now, Death Ray, Neo, and SFX, where he currently blogs about pop science, fan culture, and Samuel Beckett. He's also the host of Pseudopod, the weekly horror podcast, and is the editor of Hub Magazine at hubfiction.com, a free weekly PDF magazine covering science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Listen, people, for reviews, interviews, and related short fiction, Hub gets 10 tentacles up from Uncle Norm. It's really top-notch stuff. Reading this fantastic little story, the vocal phenom J.B. Goodspeed. J.B. is an established recording professional working with toy manufacturers and video game companies. Go check him out, especially his family guy impersonations. Quite impressive. At fancyvoices.com, this guy puts the Z in mad voice skills. Urban. So, without further ado, The Existential Lizard by Alistair Stewart.
1: Dear sister, I haven't seen you since you were a claw tall. Do come in. Archie bowed deeply as Maeve stepped into his study. She took a moment to remember the smell, the scent of old leather and hot meat, of tea and savagery. Archie held a delicate forearm, curiously feet, even with the immense overclaw. She forced down the bile, took the lead claw, and shook it once. Hello, Archie. He reared up, long face pulled back in a wide grin. Maeve, what can I do for you? She shifted her weight, uncomfortable beneath his unblinking stare. I need some advice, Archie. He hopped, with surprising grace, onto a chair and settled himself. Maeve remembered her father altering the chair just for him, cutting the tail hole, lowering the seat trying to stop his hands shaking as he cut. He spread his forearms as wide as they could go. My only commodity, and it is in abundance, to be fair. What can I help you with? Tea, by the way? He shook a bell between two scaled fingers, and after a moment a butler appeared. Jenkins, tea for two, please. His eyes widened, and he rolled his words around his tongue, relishing them. And, Elevens's? "'Jenkins,' Maeve noticed, was careful not to move quickly, "'careful not to break eye contact. "'Very good, sir.' "'The butler turned to go, and Archie returned his attention to Maeve, "'his stubby forearms folded in a grotesque imitation of attention. "'She felt, rather than saw, his gaze move from her ankles to her knees, "'her thighs, assessing tendons, muscles, the best concentrations of meat. "'I need to know how to kill someone, Archie.' He clapped in delight. You'd be amazed how many times I get asked that, my dear. I have two answers for you. She frowned. Do you want to know who it is? As far as he could, he looked scandalized. Good Lord, why? What possible relevance could that have? I don't know. It could lead to different techniques, different approaches. Archie was on her. There was no movement, just a sudden transition from him crouched on his chair to the wickedly clawed feet on either side of her, his snout inches from her face. Your first answer, you kill face to face, eye to eye. In this situation, you don't fight with your body, you fight with your eyes. It is will against will, heart against heart, tooth and claw and fur and fire. Whatever must be done is done, because at the end of the day, you must live. You must prevail. He leaned closer, and there was no civility. Only the lizard. Only the predator. How does this feel? Mae forced herself to stare him down, to look past the teeth longer than her fingers. Wrong. He hopped down off her, his mood lightening instantly. Very well, then. Option number two. You do it from a distance, whether that distance is physical or ethical. Hire someone to beat them up or shoot them, stab them, buy their company, burn down their house, and watch as they crawl out of the wreckage of their lives. Less immediate, but more intellectually stimulate Oh, T. He capered over as the trolley was wheeled in. Jenkins took an immaculate silver lid off a bucket filled with something that stank of blood and recent violent death, and he buried his head in it. Archie? After a moment, the long snout of the raptor reappeared, drenched in gore. Yes? I prefer option two. I thought you might, my dear. T? No, I have to go, I'm afraid. She took one last look at the chair at the walls covered with books he couldn't read, at the sawdust covering the floor, the skulls of small animals stacked in the corners, at Jenkins refusing to be afraid, refusing to move, surviving in a sliver of courtesy barely the width of his shoulders. Archie cocked his head. Pleasure as always, Maeve. Call again soon. Jenkins, show the girl out. He buried his face back in his awful, and the butler led her out. He opened the door and she turned away, the warning already forming on her lips. The old man smiled, looking for all the world like a precise antique clock. Jenkins, it was a pleasure, Maeve. Goodbye. There was something in the older man's eyes she recognized. Relief, resignation, but no fear. The door closed. She remembered her father polishing it when they moved. Remembered her brother's reptilian head being dashed against it by one of Archie's friends during a raucous party. Remembered the warmth of Archie's scaly flank as she slept against him. Remembered the feeling as the door was slammed in her face when he threw her out on her 18th birthday. She was moving before realizing, crossing the street and heading to the nearest phone booth. It's me, she said. Do it. she was still there an hour later when they came for her the eight car bombs had detonated perfectly and across the city the other seven homes of the homo reptilicus the ruling families were burning along with their occupants she didn't care all she cared about was watching the flames climb over what had once been a home over that chair over her father's shaking hands over jenkins over archie When they came for her, she was still watching, crying. Her tears smelt of old leather and hot meat, of tea and savagery.
2: Well, there you go. Keeping with the existential vibe we've got going on, our next story is called Cod Philosophy, and it's written by Stephanie Campisi. Stephanie's work has appeared in magazines such as Fantasy Magazine, Sybil's Garage, Works, and Shimmer, and anthologies including Polyphony 7 through Wheatland Press and Paper Cities through Census 5 Press. She's completed a steampunk fantasy novel and a young adult fantasy novel and is currently hard at work in two other novels and a variety of absurdist stories. So without further delay, we bring you COD Philosophy by Stephanie Campisi. Once, on a morning of rank, lukewarm tea and lipsticked cheeks, the purple colorstay kind, Lucas sat on the beach, stoically ignoring the crushed up shells and sand that habitually crept into the creases of his clothing and the pleated skin around his eyes. There was a mound in the sand that some kid had dressed with hypodermics, like Jesus crowned with syringes. And the frayed grass and seaweed skirt of the ocean reeked of piss and booze. In all honesty, it was a bloody awful place, which was perhaps why Lucas liked it so. Occasionally, on mornings of tongue searing coffee and Bert Newton's Good Morning Australia, he'd take a stick and run, dragging lines in the sodden sand below his feet. Sometimes he'd write poetry before the wind picked at it with eager fingers and the ocean drooled all over his painstaking work. Today, he sat because that was the calling of this particular type of morning. So when a plump but admittedly undersized sea critter flipped out of the water and landed at his feet, slapping its fishy tail and staring with pride open myopic eyes, Lucas was quite unimpressed. I do apologize, Mr. Fish, but I'd rather not be stared at by your little watery eyes on this morning of rank, lukewarm tea and lipsticked cheeks, he said, jowls quivering a little as he shook his head. Mr. Fish continued staring with said little watery eyes and scratched himself with a crepe-papery fin. I'm sorry, sir, but I came to ask a favor of you. Lucas lit a cigarette and blew it in Mr. Fish's face, an action rather inappropriate, it must be said. He uttered very profoundly, and with Shakespearean grandeur, "'Oh, yeah?' Mr. Fish's scratching was having an unpleasant effect of flicking glittering stained-glass scales about. "'I would be most appreciative, sir, if you would do me the honor of eating me.' "'Most appreciative? You'd be dead, you silly fish git.' "'Please, sir,' Mr. Fish's thin, whiskered little lips turned downwards.' "'My existence depends on it.' "'To be correct, Mr. Fish, your existence depends on me not eating you.' "'But I really would be most appreciative, sir.' Lucas considered, rolling cracked lips over his stick of burning rocket fuel, puffing mightily for emphasis. "'Ah, bugger off,' he said. "'I got more important things to do with my time. "'If I wanted a fish, I'd pick one up pre-crumbed from Safeway.' and thus rejected, Mr. Fish turned, his eyes swollen and glazed, and trudged back into the VCR blue ocean, where he was promptly swallowed by the idiot, slobbering maw of the next wave. Lucas took a stick and wrote a poem he entitled, Ode to Filet of Fish, the final sentence of which he traced in cigarette ash. On the next morning, which was one of spoiling orange juice, leaking milk cartons, and mashing of the snooze button. Six o'clock, six ten, six twenty, seven ten. Lucas huddled in his corner office, playing Minesweeper and marveling at the sweat and oil lacquered keyboard, which was labeled with only three remaining letters and a varied collection of inserts, alts, and F-numbered buttons. After three hours of this almost incomprehensible mental intensity, Lucas ambled to the men's toilets. He locked himself in a cubicle, seated himself, and became engrossed in highly articulate works of art, such as Sack de Boss and Carl Was Here, 96. Then beneath him, in the bowl, something spoke. Please, kind sir, it really is most important that you eat me. My integrity demands it. Lucas looked down, and there, avoiding coils of pubic hair, was Mr. Fish, his little whiskered face looking most anxious. Lucas flushed the toilet and slammed down the seat. The same occurred through all manners of mornings, be they post-coital, sweat-stained and talk-back radio, or broken ducted heating, melted, plasticky cheese and crushed roses, or hot water-absent showers, empty tubes of toothpaste and ice-jeweled windscreens. One bland, not-quite-anything morning, when confronted by the whiskered petite fish, Lucas blinked and said calmly, Mr. Fish, As averse as I am to chomping on scaly, fishy critters, I shall eat you, if that is what you desire. But first, pray tell me why it is that you have such a longing to be devoured by me. Mr. Fish propped himself up on his shaky little tail, his blackened egg yolk eyes gooey and foul. Sir, he said, let me begin by saying that I am much obliged by your decision to eat me. Lucas nodded and turned on the stove, enjoying the hazy scent of gas. The old urine smell of congealed grease swarmed through the air, but Mr. Fish was oblivious and said, there is, in the world of fishes, a certain importance associated with the act of being prepared and eaten. The fine art of filleting, the crumbing, the gorgeously aesthetic garnishes of lemon and carrot slivers. The more worthy well-bred the fish, the greater its likelihood of being marinated in the most marvelous of sauces, skewered by the finest of silverware, and, oh, being rolled upon the most discerning of palates." The creature spoke, as if enraptured by the very idea of its life being taken. Indeed, Lucas was reminded very much of a particular German man who, before a rather gruesome death, had exhibited a similar fetish. It appears then, Mr. Fish, that you have issues with self-esteem. Lucas gestured at the fat splatters staining the splashback and the wondrous assortment of mismatching crockery piled in the sink and on the benches, like a two-year-old's first attempt with Lego. The closest thing to a precious metal that had ever adorned his cutlery had probably been a silverfish. Is that not so? His fishy friend wrung his fins as best he was able, and his thin, whiskered lips drooped. Oh, it is true, he exclaimed, engorged pupils rolling about rather alarmingly. There are nets and hooks and harpoons, but even they reject me. Even Moby Dick would not open his mouth to me. "'And why is this, my begilled sea creature?' asked Lucas. "'My diminutive size, sir! Who wishes to munch on a creature who is but a mouthful?' "'Oh, little fishy, I'm sure Moby Dick has had his share of plankton during his lifetime. And you're a very articulate little thing, it must be said. Why, I'm sure even Rex Hunt would not throw you back.' The dark scabs of Mr. Fish's eyes appeared to grow moist, and the scaly little creature embraced Lucas's feet in his excitement spitting a salty seawater conglomerate on the latter's shoes. Please allow me to feel your teeth upon my tender flesh. Marinate me. Prepare me. Somewhat perturbed by this fishy fetishism, Lucas nodded at Mr. Fish. The creature's sniveling genuflection had disturbed him rather much, and he knew he would have to acquiesce, both for Mr. Fish's integrity and his own sanity. His daily discoveries of the scaled one gazing up at him from a stained toilet bowl amidst piles of filth had affected his productivity in that particular area, and his sweeper ability had most definitely declined. With a swift stroke, he brought down his blade and hacked off the creature's head. He tossed the trailing innards into the bin, where they coiled around the fish's remains like curling ribbon around a gift. Then he turned off the stove, portly, inelegant fingers sliding on the grease-stained knob, watching the red-eyed burners flare, then fade like rain-soaked rouge. He made himself a salad sandwich for dinner instead. That evening, which was one of leaking ceilings and musty armchairs and wifey's late coming home, Lucas chased the cat away from the bin. Ugh, bloody cat, he muttered as the pitch-fuzzed animal made its way to the top of the magnet-spotted refrigerator where it huddled, green eyes blank and black-slashed, licking at its paws. Lucas smelt the rubber-bin rankness of aging fish on its breath. Sir, it said pupils growing round and dull. We had an agreement, would you please eat me now? Some fish are relentless. So if there's one thing they teach you in podcasting school, it's that you always save the monkeys for last. Our next story is called Monkeys Imitating Humans Imitating Monkeys by Nancy Stebbins. Nancy's a psychiatrist and an MFA student. Her short stories have been published in the Somerset Review and Menda City Review, and we're happy to have her work now on the Drabblecast. The story is read to you by Josh Roseman. Josh lives in Georgia, and you just heard a Drabble of his on last week's show, The Birthday Party. Check out Josh's projects at roseplusman.com. So let's get down to it. We bring you Monkeys Imitating Humans Imitating Monkeys by Nancy Stebbins.
0: After Christina Tate's husband walked out on her, she looked up my ad in the Dallas phone book. She said, I need you to track down a certain Peter Tate, but let me get one thing clear. I don't care about him or his fortune. I just want my monkey back. I was sitting in my office on Beach Street, talking to her over a rotary dial phone that was probably older than she was. Got it, I said. Your husband left, and he took your monkey. I'd seen this sort of thing before. I threw a dart at the board, where I had taped up a picture of my ex-wife. It landed wide, barely piercing her earlobe. That's right, he wanted revenge, after he found out about my philanthropy. I wondered if she kissed her mother with that mouth. Did you say, giving money to charity? She pronounced the words slowly, as if she was a kindergarten teacher and I was wearing a pointed cap. You can tell a lot about a woman by how she answers her door. That afternoon, Mrs. Tate answered the door of her high-rise apartment, wearing a blue silk dress and a double strand of pearls. This one clearly liked the society parties. Going somewhere, no?' I asked in my best Bogart voice. She said, "'Thanks, but I'm agoraphobic.'" Everything glittered in the apartment, even the books. A large, cut-glass bowl on the coffee table held fist-sized crystal spheres. Next to it was a stack of animal rights brochures. The only evidence of monkey was a faint smell of ammonia and rotting vegetables. She lit a candle and motioned for me to sit on a leather couch. Sorry about the smell. Otto's cage is in the spare bedroom. I've kept everything the way he left it. I sat and pulled my notebook from my breast pocket. Has your husband withdrawn any large sums of money? She waved away the question. I told you I didn't care about that. She retrieved a bulging photo album from the bookshelf and sat down beside me. The first page was filled with pictures of a tiny monkey wearing only fur and a mischievous expression. Otto. Otto was no bigger than a baby doll. He's small, I said. He's a squirrel monkey. She flipped the pages. The rest of the pictures showed Otto wearing various outfits. Tutus, lab coats, little hats, accordions. This is the situation I rescued him from. I focused on a picture of Otto and Chaps holding up a lasso. He was grinning all teeth and gums and it didn't seem to me that he minded the clothes so you're saying the monkey is a nudist she slapped the album shut that's the problem people try to make these animals human do you know how many of these animals are adopted and then given up when their owners discover they're not miniature people i admitted i didn't peter never wanted a monkey then i came home one day to find otto wearing a little red hat with a tassel she said. When I took it off him, he bit me. She held up her right thumb to show a scar. There was a vulnerability to the gesture I couldn't resist. I took her thumb and tried to kiss it, but she jerked her hand away and hid it behind her back. Thanks, she said. But I'm philemophobic. What? I can't stand to be kissed. She led me to a theater room and turned on The Wizard of Oz on the big screen. That movie has always been one of my favorites, and I have to admit, I was warming to the lady. She fast-forwarded to the flying monkey scene. Look at what they made those creatures wear, she said. They're not real. I happened to know that some of the munchkins doubled as monkeys, and I was about to share this tidbit of information with her, but she cut me off. That's what they want you to believe." I pondered the idea of monkeys imitating humans imitating monkeys. Before I left, I asked for the red hat, hoping it would help lure the monkey to me. I tracked Peter to the airport coffee shop, where he sat alone at a cafe table eating a banana nut muffin and drinking an espresso. He slipped bits of muffin into the oversized pocket of his trench coat. I ordered a caramel macchiato and sat down across from him. He seemed to know who I was. He said, I know who you are, and everything you've heard is wrong. Christina couldn't stand the fact that Otto bonded with me. She never cared about him as an individual monkey. I took a sip of my coffee. I'm sure she loves him, in theory. He moved his empty hand near his pocket, and for a second I thought he was going for a weapon but then I saw a tiny paw reach out and wrap itself around his pinky finger. She can have the house, the cars, and all the money she wants for her beloved charities. I've got everything I need. I pulled the red hat from my briefcase and dangled it by the tassel in front of Peter. Thanks, he said, accepting the offering. I nodded. Must have been one tiny Shriner. I watched his plane taxi out onto the runway. Through a window just behind the wing, I thought I saw a bright red cap. There goes a real flying monkey, I thought, and with him flew away my fee and my shot at romance. I called Christina and gave her the news.
2: Well, that was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. You can't really buy spider monkeys, can you? If so, sign me up. I prefer nude monkeys to the Shriner variety, but I'm not picky. Hey, we should catch up on story feedback. We'll double up. Episode 147 was Cassie by Tim Pratt. This one didn't hit home for everybody. Scattercat said, I like Tim Pratt a lot. This is one of my least favorite of his stories, though. Doesn't mean it's bad, really, just that it's not as awesome. I like Cassandra a lot, but it takes a little more effort to make me enthused about references to Greek mythology. Munzee liked it, saying, I really enjoyed the episode. Odd that the one I appear in should have a main fiction set in a casino and come out three weeks before my trip to Vegas. Seems portentous. I'm a sucker for mythic tales reimagined, and love the story as argument over the nature of free will slash destiny aspect here. It really managed to push all the appropriate buttons for me. Bravo. Algernon Sidney said, I enjoyed the story, and the fact that Cassandra had an epiphany, literally. I didn't like the postmodern convention that Cassie is freed by an act of felony vandalism. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that. The following week, in episode 148, The Last Clown Hunt by Chris First, we had a story set in the Wild West with rampant clown tribes on the plains. Strawman said, Instant epic classic. Punked James Cameron with his blue people. This episode is so outrageously politically incorrect that I expect Norm, Kendall, and Luke to be Keith Olbermann's worst people of the week if Breitbart doesn't hire them first. It is exceedingly rare that slapstick parody can actually be touching. This is some kind of weird. T. Baker offered a different perspective, saying, In grade school, back in the 80s, I had it hammered into my brain that we were awful people. We destroyed this beautiful Native American culture. Not only did we do it, I was somehow responsible. As a result, the guilt trip turned me off of anything that tried to make me feel even more guilty. I'm not a big fan of, we destroyed the Indians' plots. This story, though, this production, was the first to break through my encrusted emotions and see the struggle again without the baggage. It threw aside precedent and told the story of an embattled people in meta-fashion. It doesn't matter if it's Indians or Armenians or Jews or Palestinians, they're the same. People who at some point have fought a losing battle for their lands and their lives. The fact that it uses humor so masterfully and absurdity so convincingly is just true art. We'd love to have you join the community of weirdos that is the Drabblecast. Go hop in our discussion forums, let us know your thoughts about the stories this week. You can find a link smack dab in the middle of the page at Drabblecast.org. So kick-ass donor of the week this week is James Koundart. Dr. Koundart has been an assistant professor of optometry at Pacific University since 2005 and he's a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry. He enjoys cycling, karaoke, and runs a vegetarian meetup.com group that does wacky, geeky stuff in the Portland metro area. I know we've got a crap load of listeners out there in Portland, so if any of you don't eat meat, even the non-talking kind, check out James's group. We'd probably have a blast. We'll find a link in our show notes. Oh, and James just got married in October, so congrats. Busy guy. We appreciate the support, James. We certainly need it. So if you folks at home enjoyed this week's show, consider throwing us some cash via the PayPal support options on our website, one time or automatic five bucks a month subscription. We'd be most appreciative, sir. Before we go, this week's 100-character story winner, fitting with our identity existentialism sub-theme this week, Mr. Tweedy takes it down with a twobble called The Philosophers. The Philosophers saw with dismay that there was nothing left to deconstruct they glanced at each other suspiciously follow us on twitter and get the goods each week so that's our show it's produced under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license which means don't change it don't sell it but share it all you like special thanks to this week's episode artist everyone's favorite bacon addicted web artist skeet science Skeet puts out fantastic stuff. Check them out at skeetland-art.com. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, to eat the cat, we had a deal.